Well, good morning and uh, welcome on this gorgeous weekend. Special greetings to those joining us at uh, Highland Park Crossroads and the 01. Uh, Today, I want to talk about the choices that are ahead of us as it relates to living in a world that is broken and around people with whom we don't always agree or understand. Uh, I want to start with two apologies. The first one is for my voice, which may or may not be there. Uh, uh, Well, I've got a little bit of a cold and post-stroke that does weird things to my voice. So anyway... Uh, Secondly, uh, I'm going to be a little bit more tied to my notes today because this is the third sermon I wrote on this topic. Uh, I initially set out six months ago to speak on civility in light of what I saw was a growing sort of toxicity in our culture. A lot of more anger, a lot more polarization, a lot of uh, just sort of vitriol. And it didn't feel like we were headed in a right, good direction. And so I just thought, okay, well, in light of that, I want to talk about this classic virtue of civility, which I believe we as Christ followers are called to. Civility comes from the Latin word civitas, which uh, is the word for city. Polis, uh, which gives us politics, is the Greek word for city. Aristotle argued that, that in order to be a mature person, a real human you have to know how to live in the city. You have to know how to get along with other people. Uh, and so that's sort of what gives us this idea of, of civility. Uh, Oz Guinness, in a book called The Case for Civility, uh, defines it as saying it's not, um, it, is a, it is a small r Republican and a small d Democratic virtue. And the, the more uh, diversity you find in a culture or in a, in a land, the more... Uh, civility is required, and the more we have to think about how we live and how what we do affects other people. Uh, It's not simply being nice. It's not being kind. It's not uh, saying please and thank you, although saying please and thank you actually can help uh, a fair bit. Uh, Jesus was occasionally kind, and he was occasionally not. Uh, If you think of Jesus as being kind and warm and having soft eyes and, you know, a little lamb around his neck and always saying, use your inside voice, then you've you not read the gospel accounts of Jesus, who was occasionally very warm and loving and kind, and occasionally uh, made comments like, you're a whitewashed tomb and, and overturned tables. And, you know, you don't, you don't put someone who is, who is the epitome of kindness to death by crucifixion for being, a, you know, for being a, an insurrectionist. And so, so this is not that. But I wanted to talk about um, how we, as uh, Christ followers, could raise our game in this issue of civility and being loving and thoughtful and, and yeah, thoughtful in a culture that is growing increasingly diverse. So this is the fourth presidential season, election season, that I've been senior pastor. And in the previous three, in the summer before the election, I would always take a couple weeks and do a little mini political series. And never partisan. One time we looked at Romans 13 and looked at God's view of government. One time Exodus 20 to look at how we need to be certain that we're not turning the government into an idol. We're not looking to the government to do things that God ultimately should do, provide security and other things like that. Uh, I did a couple weeks on how we're to think about the United States of America. Is it a Christian nation or is it not? You know, you, you, what, why do people argue both ways? 
Uh, one time I did three weeks on how would Jesus vote uh, on certain issues. So uh, I don't know whether these ever did anything. What I found is that some Republicans got mad at me because they thought I was a Democrat. Some Democrats got mad at me because they thought I was a Republican. Most people just assumed I was with them wherever they were. And uh, so um, I'm not sure whether it worked or not. Today I was going to start by saying, I'm not going to say anything about him or her. This is not about that, but I want to talk about civility. So I wrote that message and uh, that was outlined and ready to go. Uh, earlier in the week. And then uh, there were the killings and the, the videos released with Altan uh, Sterling in Louisiana and uh, Flamendo uh, uh, Castile out of Minnesota and the disrest and the anger. And I thought, I need to go back. And so I went back to the sermon and tweaked it. There's a sense in which there's civility at one level. We're talking about how we talk to each other and uh, trying to turn down the anger and the rhetoric and the toxicity in that. This seemed to go to a, a different level. So I was weaving in more of some of the violence, ongoing violence in Chicago. And uh, so that was, then I got that done Thursday night. And then uh, Friday uh, morning I woke up to hear, uh, as many of you did, about what had happened in Dallas. And initially I thought, you know, what I said in round two is good. I think I'm fine. And then uh, yesterday morning I got up and I read over the sermon and I thought, nope, it's not fine. I need to, uh, I need to go back at this again. So um, I have been just, I've had a growing unrest uh, over the last months. And um, I, I, some of it grew out of this election cycle. I went into it thinking, I got a pretty good understanding of, of the left and the right and the tensions there. And yes, I think there's more entrenchment and there's more anger and there's more people at the extremes. But I don't think the extremes have moved uh, further out. I think that that's been there. And so I sort of felt like I had that, an understanding of that division. And because it's been a 20-year project, uh, I have an awareness that as a, as a wealthy white male, that I don't really see the systemic injustices in the culture that, in which we live. So African-American friends, uh, Hispanic friends, others, just talking to me over and over about their experiences and reading books and going back at it because I don't experience a world that's racist. I don't experience those kinds of injustices. But uh, I, I now get that that's because I move through... Uh, I moved through this culture in a position of being in the majority uh, ethnic group. And so I'm aware of the challenges that we have on that, on that front. What I was not aware of, what added to my sort of unrest, was I um, was not aware of how big the gap had grown between what I'll say are the haves and the have-nots. Uh, I, you know, I don't have many friends who think building a wall along the Mexican border is a good idea, is a plausible idea. And yet I'm reading, and there's, you know, 42% are, are behind this. And I'm like, who are these 42%? I don't, I, I can't come up with one. And uh, I read Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, in which he talks about the, the sort of bifurcation of the middle class. And, and, and what he said in there that really got my attention was that most people uh, just don't move at all in circles in which uh, people who, if, if they're middle class and moving up, they just don't have much interaction with middle class moving down. 
and I thought, okay, this is a, there's a little bit more dynamic going on here than I realized. Then, um, as, I've, as I've shared, I, I got into this whole study of the future because um, a year ago or whatever, I'm watching Greece sort of tumble into civil unrest. And I'm watching the TV and watching some of what's going on there, and I'm watching some of the protests, and I'm reading about Illinois' financial situation, and all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, I'm not, if, if, are we going to have civil unrest? And then I think about Ferguson and Baltimore and other places, and I think, well, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready. I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be a civic leader. If there's unrest uh, in Chicago, I don't know what to do. Uh, so, so I started calling my pastor friends. Hey, have you thought about this? Are you ready for this? And every one of them, to a person, is like, I'm not at least bit ready. So I eventually then got a foundation to give some money and pulled together a little gathering of pastors to talk about this and where we're headed. And that sort of just led into ongoing study of uh, the future. And, and as I have shared in the past, and we'll share again today, I'm not as I'm not as pessimistic as I was going into my study, but there's things that scare me. And then, um, and then Dallas uh, comes along, and, and Dallas hits me in a slightly different way. I did a consulting uh, project with the police department, and that involved months of sort of being involved, trying to help restructure a department when I was a consultant. And, and so I rode in cop cars and did some things like that, and I came away saying, wow, is this a job I do not want? Uh, there's trouble over there. There's, you know, the bar's closed and a bunch of drunks coming out with guns. We got to get over there as qu- quickly as we can. I'm thinking, no, we got to get as far away from there as we can. Uh, so I, I had an understanding of, of just some of the challenges that officers face. And then I had, uh, had a friend growing up. Uh, Tom was my age. His younger brother, John, would hang around with us some. He's a couple years younger, and then John grew up to be a police officer in, uh, in Dallas. And about 20 years ago, he was killed on duty. Uh, he had stopped at an accident. He was the only officer uh, in the car. He'd stopped in an accident. And, uh, and it was a, it was a uh, sort of a racially charged moment. He was jumped by someone who was uh, mentally unstable, who wrestled him for his gun, and then supposedly, to the chanting and encouragement of the crowd, he was shot and killed. So Dallas, civil unrest, police officers being killed, that, that sort of goes back to, uh, to a friend of mine who was killed. So um, all that to say, uh, this, this topic has got my attention. And I found myself, uh, I found myself even this week angry. And uh, woke up one morning and I was angry. And that's very unusual for for me, I don't wake up angry. I wake up tired. I don't wake up angry. But I woke up and I thought, wow, I'm really mad. What am I mad about? And so I, I sort of went into my devotional rhythms and thought at some point, yeah, this isn't going to work. I'm going to have to really uh, linger here and spend more time here and, and work through this and try and identify what's going on. And I know that anger is a secondary emotion, that uh, there's usually something that motivates the anger. So what we, what's motivating the anger? And eventually I thought, you know, I think that this is, that this is fear that I am, I am feeling. <clears throat> I went and looked up uh, the, the famous uh, poem by Keats. And he says, The falcon cannot hear the falconer. 
Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Uh, Martin Marty, University of Chicago uh, church historian, said that one of the things that we have happening right now is that he says, the people that are good at civility don't have many convictions. And the people that have convictions are not very good at civility. And what we are called to as Christ followers, I believe, is a convicted civility. <laughs> it's, it, is a, it is a civility. It is a love. It is a way to navigate. It is a way to think about other people. It's a way to be salt and light in a, in a culture that's hurting that grows out of our convictions and out of who we are and out of who we have been called to be. So uh, I want to frame my comments uh, out of First Peter, and then we'll jump into First Peter. So there's just a few random thoughts that I think uh, are important to get out there, five that I want to get out there, and then we'll turn to First Peter. Uh, I want to start by saying it's worth noting that many things are going well. Not for everybody, but if you step back, if you go to 30,000 feet and look at the last 100 years and you look at the world, <laughs> in so many ways, things are getting better for just about everybody. Right? We are wiping out extreme poverty. We're seeing the rights of people uh, expand. There's a lot of ways in which a lot of things are better than they have been. America, in spite of this week, remains one of the most stable places to live on the planet. And the challenges that we face at this moment are nothing politically compared to the challenges of the early church in the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, so there's a lot in which we just, we just need to do a reality check and put this in perspective. And uh, it's, it's not uh, as bad as some might suggest. Secondly, I want to remind you that there's room for disagreement about how we think about fixing these problems. There's a whole group of people that believe that the way forward revolves around government programs. There's a whole group of people that think the way forward does not involve government programs. Okay, uh, we're entitled to disagreement. But we've got to figure out how to disagree agreeably. We've got to figure out how to disagree constructively. We've got to figure out how to listen and how to move forward in those settings. We don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. And uh, we have been called to walk hand in hand. Third, <clears throat> there's a great opportunity here for the church to be the church. <laughs> right? When it's darkest, then the light shines most brightly. And so uh, we have a great opportunity for the church to be the church. Not simply another uh, lobby. Not simply another group that is advocating for their own rights, right? We, we cannot be that. That's largely the way we have been perceived. We cannot be that. We have to be advocating on behalf of others. We have to be thinking about the shalom that, that God talks about, this justice that is deep and rich. It's not simply the absence of violence. It's positive health and moving forward. And there's an opportunity. There are spiritual problems in our country right now. So you need, you need economic solutions to economic problems. You need political solutions to political problems. You need spiritual solutions to spiritual problems. Right now, there, there's going to be a tendency to, to look for political solutions to spiritual problems. That isn't going to work. It's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, it's a whole lot better for a country to go through a revival than it is to try and hire enough police uh, to patrol everything that's going on. 
So there's a great opportunity for the church to be the church. We need to understand that we live in a pluralistic society. It's different than it was 30 years ago. Uh, in the 50s, uh, you know, everybody thought relatively the same, looked the same, had the same views, spoke the same language. When you get into a culture that is more diverse, and our culture is increasingly diverse, globalism has brought down the tall walls that have been separating culture. When you get into a different kind of culture, you have to be more intentional about being civil <laughs> and about living in ways that honor and reflect the diversity of opinions that are around you. Uh, I have a friend who uh, lives outside of Chicago, and he was saying that his, uh, his daughter goes to a grade school where 35 different languages are spoken. We couldn't even name 35 languages. We could barely name 10. 35 different languages are spoken in this grade school. That's the world in which we live. And so we have to wake up uh, to the realities that uh, we're going to have to be more intentional about things. And then the last thing I'll say before we look to 1 Peter um, 3 is that the options in front of us are, in one sense, the same options that are always in front of the church. Uh, These get framed different ways in different periods. Uh, Different writers have different terms that they use, but but basically, you've got a few options that you can, that you can fall back on. One option uh, currently goes under the, the, the heading of the Benedict option is to withdraw. So there were four political parties in the early uh, Roman Empire, right? The Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and the Essenes. So the Pharisees was the religious right, the Sadducees were the liberal elite, the Zealots were the insurrectionists, they wanted to overthrow Rome. The Essenes were those who said, we're dropping out, right? We're going to move out into the desert, and we're going to hold up our own little community, and we're going to wait for everything to fall. Because it's bad, it's going downhill, we can't change it, so we're going to get into in our own. Bring, keep the kids inside, it's too late, it's too dark, we've got to retreat. So today, uh, this goes by the term the Benedict Option. This was used by the, by the Benedictine monks, and they actually did great things, pulled Europe out of the Dark Ages when the Roman Empire was falling. Uh, so there's some value to this, but I've always sort of been glad other people wanted to pick that option. But it doesn't seem like a viable option to those who have been called to be salt and light in uh, a culture. And so I don't think the Benedict option is the one in front of us. There's a second option that goes by various titles. Basically, it's to to seize power. And so uh, culture wars is the way this gets talked about now. Let's, let's get our people elected. Let's pass our laws. Let's get our judges. And we're going to, we're going to win the day that way. So um, the challenge with that is that uh, Jesus doesn't play that way. He doesn't, he doesn't use strong-arm tactics on people. And the life change that we're after in people cannot be legislated. Uh, it's got to be driven by the Holy Spirit. Now, there is much to be said, much to be affirmed about having good laws, just laws, about having Christians in political office. There's much to be said for participating in the, the political process. 
But to think that we're going to use uh, the ballot box to get what we need, I think, is, is naive. And if it could have worked, I think that moment is gone anyway. I just don't think the votes are there anymore. So you've got the Benedict option retreat. You've got the, you've got the power option, culture wars. So the third option is, is sort of the messy option. And it says you live in the midst of it. And you try to do your best. You try to love. You try to serve. You try to model Jesus. So I, I've started to call this the Wilberforce option after William Wilberforce, the, the 19th century British uh, or 17th century British parliamentarian who fought for the freedom of the slaves. He came to faith as a young man who was already in Parliament and uh, was discipled by uh, John Newton, the former slave trader who had become a Christian who wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, Wilberforce was going to drop out of politics to be a pastor. And Newton says, no, 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 stay in Parliament. And your life assignment is to free the slaves, to end the slave system throughout the British Empire. And, and Wilberforce will spend the next 40 years. He'll be at times the most hated man uh, in, throughout the British Empire. He, he will be physically attacked uh, on a couple of occasions. He is loving, he's gracious, he's witty, he's charming. He keeps coming back and eventually he prevails. It is a confusing option, um, but I do think it is the right one. And so uh, we have limited options. I'm advocating that we live not to be of the world, but to be in it. And we figure out what that looks like uh, to carry on. So having said that, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And um, I actually am going to read this. I am going to read this out of the message. So I thought about going to, there's so many different passages that we could go to, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Uh, Paul writes to Titus and says that we're to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show every courtesy to everyone. Hebrews 12, the writer says the same thing, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Um, I want to go to 1 Peter. So Peter is writing uh, at a time where persecution is rising. He's in Jerusalem Persecution is rising against Christians throughout the Roman Empire. It's a circular letter, so it's going to everybody. And he basically is, is writing against the backdrop of saying, life is going to get hard. You're going to get persecuted. <laughs> you, you should expect that because that's what's coming your way. And in light of that, he says this. And I'm reading the message, which is sort of a paraphrase. So it sounds, it's been made to sound very much like a letter that uh, Peter would have written. Summing up then, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you, no exceptions. No retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless. That's your job. Bless. You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Whoever wants to embrace life and see the day, fill up with good. Here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. God looks on all this with approval. Listen and respond well to what he's asked. But he turns his back on those who do evil things. If with heart and soul you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ your Master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living this way. 
And always, with the utmost courtesy, keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing they're the ones who need a bath. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to be punished for doing bad. That's what Christ did def- uh, definitively. He suffered because of others' sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous. He went through it all, was put to death, and then made alive to bring us to God. So let me pull a few things out of there that I think are marching orders for us as we think about moving forward. I have a handful of sort of things to do. Number one, to love. So Christianity 101 calls on us to love, right? We are to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. So this doesn't mean that we're to, to, to sort of befriend our enemies and change them so that they'll be like us so that we can love them. It means we are to love them. We're to be the kinds of people who treat them uh, as we would treat friends. That's who we are to be. Um, today, love is not the key word. Today in our culture, the, the word that is celebrated is the word tolerance. We're to, we're, to, we're to exhibit tolerance in every direction. Now, tolerance actually has changed its meaning. Used to be in order to tolerate something, you had to disagree with it, but you treated the person you disagreed with in a civil way. Now, um, you have to agree with people you might disagree with. It's, it gets a little bit tricky, but it's sort of... Uh, many people who advocate tolerance are very intolerant about tolerance in the way they want to define it. It's, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, but here's the deal. We're not called to tolerate people. We're called to love people. <laughs> it's a different standard that we have been called to than uh, everyone else has. I love, uh, I love uh, what Dr. Uh, King says here. Uh, Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can drive out hate. So we need to be um, loving. Secondly, we are to respond in hope. So I have found myself, as I talk about the future and some of the challenges coming and is, uh, this week, I find myself saying to some people who, who sort of see everything coming undone, say, relax. Uh, it's, you know, Jesus wins. I mean, this, this ends well. If you're in Christ, you don't have to panic. Your, your well-being does not depend upon who wins the election in November. Uh, it, you know, there's, in Christ, we have all the assurance that we need. The, 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 a gracious, loving kingdom is coming. And uh, it might get darker before it gets better. Probably will. But we don't have to panic. We don't have to act as if everything is coming undone. And it's not, uh, it doesn't reflect positively on the sovereignty of God and our confidence in God if we are panicking uh, when things go on. Number three, we need to respond in humility. A few weeks, uh, excuse me, a few years ago, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, had a, had a column in which he argued that uh, we needed civility and that one of, the, uh, one of the roots, the chief roots of civility, is humility. 
And he said, we need, and he was talking specifically in the context of political discussions going on, he says, but the parties need to recognize that uh, they might not have the best solution on their own, but that if you work together, you can come up with something that's better. But it requires us to have a little bit of humility and to think, maybe I don't have everything wired in like I thought I had it wired in. Um, I, I think of Psalm 139 on this, because it's, a, it's an amazing psalm of David. And, and in Psalm 139, the first 17 or 18 verses, he is, he is sort of celebrating God's goodness and majesty and holiness and awesomeness. And it's this sort of, you know, rhapsodic kind of, of, of uh, just time of praise and worship uh, by David that you read. And then he sort of slips and he, he goes into what I'll call the crusader mentality. Uh, and there's not a lot of humility in that. And he says, I'm going to read uh, beginning with verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies, Right? So you just feel the self-righteousness coming out of David. He's like, I, got, I hate the people that, that, that are against you. I am right on this. I got all this energy. And then, as if he catches himself, uh, the psalm ends, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and test me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So there is a humility that comes uh, by David, and I think we've got to we, we've got to exhibit that humility. I would challenge those of you who are confident of your um, political solutions to listen not to those who caricature your uh, the other side, but to listen to those who advocate a different position and uh, see if perhaps you can't learn something from them. Number four, fourth thing we need to do is care for the oppressed. So, uh, as, I've, as I've already said, there's, there's disagreement and there's room for disagreement about the best way to do this. Uh, some advocate more government programs. Some say that's absolutely the wrong way to go. Okay. Uh, look, almost independent of that, there are real specific practical things that you can do. So, we have a jobs initiative uh, program. We have, we have seasoned business professionals that are working in North Chicago to identify uh, aspiring business owners, to come alongside them, to coach them, uh, to help them get access to capital, to help them hire more people, right? And, and so there's a jobs initiative program. There's opportunities to tutor in the public schools through North Chicago Community Partners. There's opportunities to tutor through Reading Power. There's opportunities to help people through changing closets, various programs that are in place. Uh, if you've not uh, looked at some of these options, I would challenge you to do it. If you don't think government is the solution, then be the solution. <laughs> uh, step up and say, I want to be part of one of, these, uh, one of these programs. They are out there for you to participate in. Um, then we need to work for an open public square. What is happening in the world right now, globally and to a little bit lesser extent nationally, but what is happening globally is there are two 
voices that are rising. You have sort of religious authoritarianism. Perhaps the, the, the perfect example of this would be radical Islam looking to get sole control over the, over the marketplace, sole control over an area. And you have, you have secular exclusivism, which we have more of in this country, saying no religious input at all, period. Uh, so you've got those two vying for power right now in various places. Uh, some would say you've got the sacred public square advocates and the naked public square advocates. And what we need, what, what, what will work going forward is a civil public square, right? Where everybody uh, has the right to believe whatever they want to believe. Jews, Muslims, Christians, Hindus, atheists, everyone has the right to believe what they believe doesn't mean that, that what they believe is right. Saying that somebody has the right to believe what they want to believe is not the same thing as saying what they believe is right. But, but that, is, that is a world that we can live in. It's different than sort of having the home court advantage that the church has had in the United States for you know, much of the last uh, couple centuries. But it, it, is, it is what will work in this diverse world. And, uh, and we need to be advocates for that. We need to be protecting the rights to believe of other people. Even as we look. In the early church, they, didn't have a, they did not have a civil public square. right? They had, they had all kinds of other forces that were pushing down on them. The church can thrive in a civil public square. We don't need government help for the church to grow. Uh, but we, but we want to advocate for that because I think that is the world in which most things will work best. So let me say that this is not, um, none of this is easy. And as a matter of fact, as I was, uh, as I was going through this week rewriting this sermon three times, uh, I was, I was, uh, in a, uh, I was in a, an argument with, uh, two people. And, uh, and I was pretty confident uh, early in the week that I could win this argument. I had a trump card. I was confident I could win. And, uh, but I was a little bit conflicted because I kept reading all these things about being, you know, thoughtful and loving and kind. And I go, eh, this doesn't feel completely right. So um, Wednesday night, whatever, uh, I had a conversation with a friend. And I said, here's what's going on. Here's what I want to do. And uh, his response was, yeah, hmm, that's not coming from a good place. Uh, you need to not do that. And, uh, and so, so it's not easy to say, I am going to try and help create uh, a world in which I set aside uh, power. I set aside my rights. I am looking to advocate on behalf of the common good. But it's what we need. Uh, it's what the world needs. Uh, I do fully believe that the hope of the church is the hope of the world here. And uh, there are opportunities that we have to make that particularly clear. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you aware of, uh, more aware perhaps this week than previous weeks of the, the struggles and challenges faced by many, the fears, uh, the problems in this broken world. 
praying that you would uh, look down with favor, praying, Spirit of God, that you would fill us. We can be, we can be uh, advocates of peace and love. We can be ambassadors for uh, the, the hope that comes uh, through Christ and forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that we can be, uh, we can be models of Christ's kind of uh, civic virtue. So guide us to that end. Help us try to figure out what that looks like in a world that's broken and given that that's a sort of messy assignment. But um, help us to be guided and inspired by you and your love, the example of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.